Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Behind the Setlist, the podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they play live. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. And I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. In this episode, we talk to Kurt Smith, co-founder, bass player, and sometimes singer in the band Tears for Fears. Along with his bandmate Roland Orzabal, Kurt is behind such time-honored songs as Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Mad World, Head Over Heels, Shout, and Woman in Chains. What a great conversation we had. Tears for Fears released a new album called The Tipping Point in February. It's their first new album since 2004. We talked to Kurt about writing and recording those new songs and how the album came to be. Uh, a couple of tracks were left over from an album that ended up getting shelved. For The Tipping Point, Kurt and Roland went back to basics, writing songs together with acoustic guitars, brought in some songwriters to collaborate, and Kurt said it was the first time since the group's debut, The Hurting, that no business people were involved. Just Kurt and Roland. And boy, did it work out well for him. The album is a commercial and critical success. Tipping Point has an average score of 83 out of 100 on Metacritic. The Independent and Record Collector both gave the album the perfect 100. Mojo gave it an 80. It got a 75 from both Pitchfork and Entertainment Weekly. On the charts, the Tipping Point went to number two in the UK and number eight on the Billboard album chart in the US. Elsewhere, it reached number three in Germany, number five in the Netherlands, number seven in Australia, and number 10 in France. Yeah, it was worth the wait. And now the pair has an amazing group of new songs to put into their live show. Since we spoke to Kurt, the band started a U.S. tour and is playing up to seven new tracks per night in a 19-song set list. The fact that the band plays that many new songs when they have such a deep catalog to tap into each night, that really says a lot about the quality of the new material. Yeah, it's an age-old question. How many new songs can you put in a set list when people are showing up to hear older favorites? But I doubt people are going to be disappointed by the new material. It does mean they're not going to hear one cover song that was a regular fixture in their set in previous years. And we talked to Kurt a bit about that well-known song. As well as some covers of Tears for Fear songs, too. Overall, great conversation. So without further ado, behind the set list listeners, here's Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears. Let it roll. like to kick this off by just asking you who's in the band uh, for this tour who's in the band um well same band we've had for a considerable amount of time actually so um it'd be jamie Wallam on drums john pettis on guitar doug petty on keyboards kareem around on backing vocals and uh myself and roland so it's a six-piece band 
but I mean, the same people we've been playing with for a considerable amount of time now. I think around 12 to 15 years, I want to say, we've been this setup now. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Um, you have a great new album called The Tipping Point, which came out in February. And I want to talk about um, an interview you did, you did with The Guardian last year. You said, after a bunch of years, we're like, it's getting boring now. I can put my heart into it that much more unless we have something fresh to say, do, or play. And now you have those new songs that you must be excited yeah. to to play live, and I'm excited to hear them live. And uh, But how much new material do you want to put in that set? If you have a 15 or 16 song set and it's a zero-sum game, some older songs might have to come out of the set. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's hard to tell until you get into rehearsals. Um, I mean, I... We're going to rehearse five or six of the new songs. Three of three we've already done of the new songs because we had TV shows we had to do earlier in the year, and they we know they sound fantastic. So you know we will attempt another two or three, um, and we may rotate them at times. Um, which you know if we do if we rehearse enough of them we can do that. But as far as dropping stuff until you get into rehearsals, I mean one I'm sure the set is just going to be longer. Because um, we don't want to drop that much, um, you know. If we drop anything, maybe a couple of songs. But um, I think until we get into rehearsals and start running actual sets, it's really hard to say which ones you you want to drop. Because until you feel the running order, until you get to doing the set, you don't know if you're missing certain emotions or not. So, you know, when you when you think before going into rehearsals that those two songs might be the ones you might drop, but then you get to rehearsals and you think, oh, that's but that song's going to fit in great here between these two new ones. So it, it's really hard to tell until you get into rehearsals. But the luxury of having too much material to choose um, from is is a great one. Is it difficult for you to mix up a set list because of maybe the lighting people or video screens or those types of things? Or can you pretty much as you go out on tour decide to change up the order without too much trouble? Yeah, no, you definitely can. I mean, this is the joy of modern technology because everything is basically computerized now. So even all the lighting for a song will be for that song, you know, obviously. So it gets keyed in when you start that track, uh, you know, because obviously it has to allow for how much talking you're doing between songs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you have to allow for that at the beginning of a of a tour because even when you get into rehearsals and you have a set list running to your satisfaction and you feel it's good, you don't know if it's really good until you get in front of an audience. So what you presume the audience reaction may be might not be the reaction. Um, this is an, this is the, the fun part of the first week to two weeks of touring is you may not have got it right and you may want to change things for the first bunch of shows. So uh, until you get in front of an audience, you don't know 100% what's going to work like. Kurt, how does it feel playing the new songs? What what live performances you've done so far? I've seen some stuff online of of you performing uh, SiriusXM Studios, for example, and you sound yeah. great. It sounds well rehearsed. And how does it feel for you? It feels wonderful. I mean, what what's great is we we were doing the uh, three of the new songs with a couple of the older songs, and they fit in 
fantastically. Um, they go really well with them. So, you know, I and and the band playing those, you know, having just finished an album, the band playing them live gives them a new lease of life. You know, because obviously in a studio you're you're trying to get as close to sort of perfection as you can as far as the recording quality and the production and everything else. But there's a certain looseness that happens when you play live uh, that's really wonderful because you don't have to be overly concerned about perfection. You have to be concerned about feel and emotion. Those are the two things that are far more important live than they um, can be in the studio. Uh, you know, you have to you you have to worry far more in the studio about quality of sound than you do live. You know, live I think quality of sound we have kind of dialed in already. It's then just down to performance. And um, once, especially being a bass player, you know, once myself and Jamie click in, there's there's no better feel than that, which you don't get in a studio because you rarely really play together. Um, you're normally doing all those parts separately. So you have an embarrassment of riches. There, there's so many different songs, uh, so many great songs that the crowd is going to expect to hear. Um, and yeah. but then there's some songs that you may pull out because you want to play them. And, and I'd love to hear about some of those, but you've also over the years played some really interesting cover tunes um not always but just once in a while like you guys have covered you know billy jean michael jackson uh, arcade yeah. fire you know P peter gabriel's don't give up um uh, even paul simon's 50 ways to leave your lover do you do you have any uh any cover tunes that you may drop in whether it's during the regular set or encores uh, for this run um again i don't really know yet that that might i mean Again, the joy of this is we have a wealth of material now, and we do want to include as much of the new material as we can. So the likelihood of us doing cover versions might be slimmer on this tour because we really would like to play the new material. Having said that, um, the joy of having them up your sleeve is you can always introduce them. And um, pretty much all of the cover versions are a kind of 100% live. I mean, they don't require any rhythmic backing. You know, we have we have kind of little bits of drum machine that we have as backing on some tracks, so you're tied to a track a bit more. But um, these are all very much live, and the reason we keep them like that is so that we can introduce them at the drop of a hat should we want to. And that, that can be just, um, you know, a call on stage of, do you feel like doing this? Roland may turn to me and say, you know, want to do Billie Jean? And I'd be like, absolutely. <laughs> or, I might, or, or I might say, no. <laughs> but, um, but, you wow. know, but, but that, that's, those are kind of calls you make as you go. You know, one song that you've played, one cover song you've played most frequently, um, according to what we've seen online, we look at setlist.fm, which kind of tabulates yeah. what you're playing, is Radiohead's Creep. And that strikes me as, as maybe a tough song to play live. You either pull it off or you don't, and you do a great version. I saw you in Nashville in 2017 at the Bridgestone Arena. You played Creep, and it got a great response from the crowd, not just because they know the song, but because you guys did a fantastic version. Yeah, I mean, that does go down incredibly well. I mean, obviously, with cover versions, 
it always helps that the audience knows it. Um, so then you're playing something familiar anyway, but with your own take on it. Um, Creep is one of those songs that really is dependent on, because of the vocal acrobatics, um, dependent on how strong Roland is feeling. Um, if, you know, if he feels completely confident that he's got that that night, then, then we would put it in. Uh, but it is one that goes down well and we have done quite often. Yeah. Kurt, I was so thrilled when Tipping Point came out. It's such a good album, start to finish. And I was, you know, I love your body of work, but I'm particularly close to Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, just for a lot of reasons, because I got to be on the team to help work it. Uh, I like all of the kind of Beatle influences and kind of that sowing the seeds of love vibe. But when I heard Tipping Point, I there were a few songs that just stuck out at me that I, I thought I'll bet these end up in the set list and I could be wrong, but the the songs, there's four, four songs that jumped out at me. One was, you know, the title track, but uh, no small thing, uh, break the man and end of night. Did I get close? You got three. I mean, end of night. We're not sure about yet. We will rehearse it. That will be one of the ones we rehearse. Um, the ones we have played live are No Small Thing, which sounds fantastic live, as as you can imagine, because it starts with just that kind of acoustic guitar and becomes this humongous mad <laughs> madness by the end of it. Um, and that just sounds fantastic live. Uh, Tipping Point we've done, Break the Man we've done. Those three definitely work right. We'll probably, we're certainly going to go with Rivers of Mercy, but having said that, that requires a lot more vocals. So that might be a song that we keep to sort of certain special gigs where we can drag on a bunch more people to sing it. Um, but we don't know until we get into rehearsals again. Um, and I think long, long, long time, because of course, you know, Karina will be with us and she sings the chorus of that. Um, and long, long, long time um, is one we'll rehearse as and we'll rehearse My Demons because that's manic. And I think that would sound great in a, a live setting. Kurt, you, uh, this album was, was a long time coming, and you and Roland worked with some songwriters, uh, a number of songwriters on this, including Charlton Pettis, who you've collaborated with in the past, and, and Jackknife Lee, who's worked with in The Killers, and U2, and Snow Patrol. Um, what was it like working with, with other songwriters, and why'd you bring them in? Um, well, that was initially, I mean, we, we wrote with a lot more than that. Um, but that was an album we finished for Warner Brothers and, and didn't like, um, which was sort of which which led us to where we are now with the tipping point and, and us going off and doing it on our own. Um, the ones we kept from all those writing sessions. I mean, the record company and management's idea at that point in time was we go off and write with a whole bunch of modern hit songwriters slash producers and try and make a modern record, which. Um, in my opinion, was we ended up with this attempt at 
sort of, I mean, there were 12 songs on the album, we'd done over 20. And there was just, it was a lot of attempts at sort of writing a modern hit single that I just felt was dishonest. Um, having said that, a couple of the songs we did keep, um, we just re-recorded them or at least updated the recording because we felt the songs were really good and we felt the emotion and the content and the lyrical content of the song um, would fit in on what we perceived the album was going to be like. So there were sessions that worked well with other people. I mean, Charlton is a sort of a, a separate issue because Charlton I've personally worked with for 30 years now since my New York days. And um, he worked with us and Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. I brought him in when myself and Roland started working together again. So Charlton's been a consistent sort of um, person working with us ever, ever since. Uh, and continues to play with us and work with us. Um, but as far as the other people, I mean, most of those writing sessions, I think personally, I think failed um, because they don't know us. They are not in tune with us. Um, they don't understand where we're coming from, particularly. Um, they were just trying to put their imprint on our music, which really doesn't particularly work. Um, the one song with Jack Knife actually did work, um, and the relationship we formed with Sasha Scarbeck um, and Flo Reuter, who was the engineer that worked with him, was a good one. I mean, I think a lot of beneficial stuff came from that. Even though only one or two made it to the album, I think working with them helped us uh, quite a bit. Um, and I, I would imagine that Sasha is certainly someone in the future we may want to work with again, purely because he gets it, you know. And it's hard when you have two people, when you have a duo. Um, obviously, it's easy for Charlton because he knows both of us and has worked with us before. But when you have two, a duo and two people who are very opinionated uh, and and two people who are ostensibly front men, so both singers, it's really hard to strike a balance. And, and if you don't even know them when they come in, it's nigh on impossible. Um, because we could be coming at things from completely different angles, which we do, and that's but therein lies the strength of us. You know, when we reach that middle ground, that's the sound of tears for fears. Um, but you have to know us and understand us to be able to get to that point. Well, it worked out really well because they do sound like tears for fear songs. They don't sound forced at all. It sounded as a listener, it sounds very natural. It worked out really well. Yeah, I mean, I think this album, strangely, is the most balanced record. When I say balanced between the two of us, um, since The Hurting, probably. Yeah. Uh, and I think it may have something to do with the fact that it, it, it's the first time since The Hurting that no business people were involved. By, you know, it, because The Hurting obviously was all written and, and, you know, a lot of it written the same way because we started on this album um, when we decided to can the album we'd done myself and Roland sat down in my house in LA and started writing on two acoustic guitars, um, and which is where No Small Thing came from. Uh, and then we hadn't done that since The Hurting, because even though The Hurting is, as we know, a very much an electronic album, um, every song on that album was written on acoustic guitar because we didn't own any synthesizers. It wasn't until we managed to get into a demo studio, having met a guy called Ian Stanley who had synthesizers and drum machines. We had no money, so we didn't own any. Um, that was when we started to produce things. So we kind of went back to the way we worked during the hurting, which was 
concentrating on the songs and then the production came was a secondary thought um so in that sense it's very much back to the way we initially worked and i think it was important for us and obviously all those songs were written before we signed a record deal as well so we had no management when the hurting was written we had no record deal when the hurting was written and we were back in the same position when we when we started restarted this album amazing so so kurt i've heard several great covers of tears for fear songs um, I loved uh, Gary Jewell's interpretation of Mad World, and and I loved how you would even play <laughs> his kind of interpretation, which I thought was awesome. But what I wanted to ask you about was, you started using Lord's cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the World uh, before shows, yeah. and it's such a, yeah. a unique take on it, slower, darker, you know, without that galloping beat of the original. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, Lord's version, and, and I would I would cite um, Gary Jules and Michael Andrews' version of Mad World as well. Um, weirdly, their, their production on those tracks um, and the feel of those tracks is actually more in tune with the lyrics, the lyrical content, because um, the lyrical content on both those songs is quite dark. But we tend to catch those things in more upbeat tracks, which is just how we do things. I'm, I'm not convinced it was ever intentional, but that's just the way we are. Um, whether that makes them more palatable or not, I don't know, but um, it's not, again, it's not really a conscious decision. But Lord's version is very dark. Help me to decide, help me make the most of and of pleasure. It was a wonderful opening opening sort of salvo on a live show because it is very dark all the sort of house lights go down it's very moody um yet familiar um because obviously people know the song and live we were went directly into our version of everybody wants to rule the world which really made that opening so much more powerful you know because my guess is that you know, people in the audience were like, oh, maybe they're not going to play it then. This is it. Um, and then and then literally we open with it. Um, and, and I'm, you know, opening with which with what is ostensibly our biggest hit was um, was great. Yeah, you don't see that every day. You, you normally um, normally a band doesn't open with a big hit. The element of surprise is a good one to use. A lot of the time, and it's not like we have we don't have other songs we can end with either. Um, so um, I, I think bookending live shows like that is actually a really useful tool. Um, I'm not sure we'll do it this time because we have too much new material, but uh, but we'll see. You know, again, I don't know until we start rehearsing. Do you have any personal favorites that you look forward to uh, playing each night? I mean, uh, sometimes you take off the bass and you'll just stand and sing, you know, like with Everybody Wants to Rule yeah. and some of those songs. Do you have any preference? Are there any songs that you really look forward to each night, whether it's because you enjoy it or the crowd response is typically uh, so huge that it, it just lights up the room? Um, I mean, there there are a lot of tracks. Um I mean, obviously, when you get to hits, the response is is going to be huge, whatever. Uh, 
I think that when we get to, I mean, the song Everybody Loves a Happy Ending always goes down incredibly well, but musically it's quite complex. And uh, that's always fun to play because musically it's quite complex. Um, so a lot of the time when you're stretching yourself musically, it's more fun to play. A bad man song is always a joy to play live because we get to jam in the middle of it. Uh, and that can be different every night. So there are certain tracks, but but certainly everybody wants to rule the world when you play that live. It's an absolute joy. And, and the joy comes from, because I'm still amazed, you know, to this day, and I've been doing it for a year or two, um, when, because the opening, um, the opening bars of Everybody Wants to Rule the World can consist, as we know, of a guitar figure that is three notes. So it's three notes on a guitar played in a certain order, in a certain rhythm, changes the mood, can change the mood of a hundred thousand people if we're saying if we're playing rock in Rio or whatever. But whatever size audience we're playing in front of, the mood in an, the entire audience changes in just one bar of music. And to this day, the, the, the fact that music has that power is a constant amazement to me. You know, Kurt, we, um, we did quite a deep dive on YouTube leading up to having this conversation <laughs> with you. And, and YouTube is great for research. Um, and I compared songs from, or performances you did in the 80s compared to 2019, YouTube has it all. Um, a lot of the songs sound really similar over the years. One exception might be Mad World, and it sounds like maybe you've you've changed it up in the mood and the tempo and maybe the instrumentation a bit. Um, you know, that song has taken on a different life over the years. And um, I did yeah. see on set list that Adam Lambert has played it 153 times by their track, and he performed it on American yeah. Idol in, in 2010. So it's been covered by 21 Pilots also. Uh, recorded by Demi yeah. Lovato, Seal, Pentatonics, even Susan Boyle, which I, I just learned the other day. Um, how has that has that song changed over the years and how you play it live? Um, yeah, I mean we've gone back to the original now because I, I think people aren't familiar enough with the original because it wasn't. Well, I mean in England it was obviously a huge hit, but in America it wasn't. Um, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, some people even might think that that song is. So Gary Jules, Michael Andrews song. Um, for all I know, you know, I mean, we have had people when we played Memories Fade from The Hurting come up and think, oh, it's cool that you did that Kanye song. Um, so, you know, in, in that sense, it's always good to play the original and, and where, where the song act actually started. But we have toyed with Mad World because we do love the Gary Jules, Michael Andrew version. Um, and so we have done it like that. We have done it just acoustically. We have done it with the backing of a choir, which was on Night of the Problems in Europe, which had a full choir and orchestra, which made it very different. So I have done it with just a choir. I've done it actually my kids school with the school choir from the school um so you know there are many versions of that i mean i think it to me it's the strength of a song that allows it to be done in many different ways 
And if the song doesn't fall flat, then obviously the song itself is the strength. It's not necessarily the recording. So that just tells you you have a, a strong song. And, and, and that is, is gratifying when you hear the various different versions of it. Kurt, I'd love to ask you about um, how you approach the encore. I looked at a lot of set lists, and a lot of them you do a one-song encore. Shout was, was encore a lot in 2019. Um, you don't come out and do a, a whole other string of songs. Just one song. Why is that? Um, I mean, to be honest, if I had my way, <laughs> um, which I don't, this is what being a duo entails, and also, you know, when it's when we disagree on it, then then we we take, mm-hmm. you know, someone else has to be the tiebreaker. That's normally the rest of the band, um, and I get voted down each time. I wouldn't do an encore um, if I had my way, uh, purely because I always every time I'm like, yeah, of course they're coming back and playing more. It's not like people don't know you're going to come back and play more. Um, so. You know, it's not really a surprise. I mean, the idea of the encore originally was, you know, they were done, but the audience went so crazy. You're like, okay, you've got to kind of go and give more. But everyone now has the encore prepared. Everyone now is coming back on and just, you know, it's not down to the reaction you get from a crowd, particularly. Um, I think, you know, if the story, I think the story can be told in a set, start to finish. You know, to me, it would be like um, a play coming back and doing an encore. You know, you would never think of a play coming back and doing encore or, or even a musical coming, you know. So to me, it's a story and, and the story goes from start to finish. So I think if, I think if it was if it was my way, I wouldn't come back and do an encore but because I think you can tell the story from start to finish in a better way without a break. But I also understand that audiences now expect that. Uh, so they would then be disappointed. And also... You know, when you say, you know, Shout was the encore we did, let's face it, if we haven't played Shout in the set, the audience knows we're coming back and playing it. <laughs> so it's not like it's a big shock. Um, so I don't know. I, I always think it's a little cheesy, to be honest, but uh, it is what it is. And I, and I guess that's what an audience comes to expect. Um, I mean, I'm not saying I hate, hate it, but I think that if, if I was given a choice, I would do sets without an encore and just tell the story and leave. Kurt, um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, congratulations on the tipping point. It's been so well received. Uh, looking forward to seeing you guys out on the road uh, starting uh, May 20th. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. All right, Kurt. Take care. Thank you.